Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hey, welcome back. Yeah, welcome back to you too, and welcome back to the listeners as well. Oh, is you two here? I didn't hear Bono come in. Am I bugging you? I don't mean to bug you. Hmm. Uh, we don't have a pre-flight checklist this week, do we? No, we're going to talk about the Voyager program. Uh, and there was so much of this that it's it's going to be a whole episode unto itself. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff to go over today. I was going to ask you, uh, Jason. Yes, uh, sir. Uh, I didn't do the math. So if this is an insulting question, forgive me. You were, I mean, uh, do you remember anything of Voyager? Yeah, you were. You were how yeah, I was young a kid, were you? And I loved. Yeah. I mean, when I was in first grade, I I was obsessed with space stuff, and so I was in first grade in like nineteen seventy six, seventy seven. Okay. So yeah, so kind absolutely, of the, kind of the perfect age for this. Yeah, yeah. So I I I don't remember like the launches, but I remember all of the all of the encounters and everything. No, the first I think the first space probe that I remember is Viking when it okay. landed on Mars and sent back those wacky Mars pictures, red Mars pictures. But um, but Voyager, absolutely, I remember um, all of this. But although, keep in mind that back in those days, I mean, today you watch the watch things live, and there's live streams of everything and all that. Back in those days, how did you um, how did you get your space info? Well, the answer was there'd probably be a story on the news in the evening for like a minute where they showed a picture. And then you waited for, and then in the newspaper the next day, they might have a picture on newsprint in black and white. And the, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. You would wait for probably, you know, the, a news magazine like Newsweek or Time might have a picture or two in color. Um, and I subscribed to Astronomy Magazine. And so then you'd get a bunch of pictures in Astronomy Magazine like two months later of the flyby of uh, Saturn or whatever. And that's, that's, we are uh, we are spoiled now. It is fantastic that we get what we get because back then it was really frustrating. Yeah, I mean, I remember you know being on my computer as the New Horizon stuff as, as that was breaking, and you just see it come in. I mean, it feels like real time almost, right? They're just they're putting it out so frequently and and well, so like, often. Like the Mars rover um, and most landings now, planetary landings, not so much flybys, but planetary landings. There's um, there's live video from like JPL of people being yeah. excited about it and, and yeah. <laughs> first pictures coming over and things like that. And that just didn't, that wasn't the sort of thing that we got. And even with New Horizons, we got some idea like it was going past and here's a sample image and now it's going to be a while before we get the rest of the data. But uh, back then, I will say CNN did a pretty good job back when Ted Turner owned CNN. Ted Turner was a space nut. People forget this. Ted Turner was a space nut. And so they did amazing space coverage back in those days. They were the best. Like John Holloman was one of their space anchors. Um, and Miles O'Brien, of course, started there doing space coverage, too. That When they did the service mission for the Hubble Space Telescope to fix the, the problems with Hubble, like CNN would just do live the spacewalks. They'd just be live on CNN. And if you've ever watched spacewalk video, it's really boring. Like, it's super boring. But um, they would just, CNN would be like, yeah, we're showing the spacewalk for two hours. You got a problem with that? <laughs> and that, that was mostly because Ted Turner really loved space coverage and they were great at it. And of course, when they became more just a Time Warner kind of shell, their space coverage dwindled back to nothing like any other news organization that doesn't isn't run by a billionaire who loves space. So but Elon Musk, what I'm saying is time for that all space 
TV network, but you don't even need it anymore. They just stream it on the internet. That's all you need. Well, good. I'm glad that was an insulting question. Uh, I figured you were around, but I kind of, I kind of, I didn't, I didn't work it out before the show. So we're going to get into into Voyager. Uh, talk about the mission background a little bit. Talk about the planetary mission, uh, which you alluded to, and then talk about the interstellar mission and, and kind of the the current state of the Voyager probes. Because that's what's so amazing about this story is that. As we're recording this, they're still out there. They're they're not doing as much as they were, right? The limited capacity and, and tools now as time has gone on, but they're still doing work all these years later. And that that is just really an incredible legacy to, to consider. Yeah, it's the best. You know, if you were drafting space probes, I'm say I'm just gonna say these would go high in a draft of space probes. Hmm. Yeah. Someone should do that. Seems like a good idea. I'm gonna write it down. So when we talk about Voyager, we're really talking about uh, two space probes, uh, their siblings, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. They were launched in 1977, and this was to take advantage of a favorable alignment of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. This was dubbed the Planetary Grand Tour, which is like super awesome 1970s science name. For some reason, I, just really, like it's, I love that name. And... Initially, the idea was to send several different types of probes into the outer solar system for this this event. This event only takes place once every 175 years. So you kind of have a window where all these planets are kind of in line uh, with each other. So if you're going past them, you can you can hit all of them. Uh, but, you know, due to things like budget and, and, you know, planning and stuff, this got stripped back to just the two spacecraft that we that we know about today. The original mission was to study uh, the planetary systems of Jupiter and Saturn. Uh, Voyager 2 continued on to Uranus and Neptune. We just covered these planets, and as we talked about, Voyager 2 to date is the only probe to go to these two planets. Uh, everything we, we know about them up close is from Voyager 2. Uh, and now both Voyagers are tasked with exploring uh, the very boundary of our solar system and potentially even interstellar space, as we're going to talk about. Um, the mission yielded many breakthroughs. I mean, if you go through and read about this, like the the list of achievements that these that these spacecraft have have met is just really mind blowing. Uh, Close up images uh, of things like Jupiter's complex cloud forms, you know, things that that Juno is studying now. We saw them for the first time up close uh, with Voyager. Seeing uh, Io and its volcanic activity. Yeah. First time up close. All those moons were, were were basically mysteries, right? They're little dots, and then Voyager introduced us to the moons of Jupiter, which are so interesting. But they they used to just be kind of not that we didn't know as much about them before. Uh, Voyager two discovered Uranus's magnetic field and ten additional moons at that planet. And uh, six moons in Neptune and Neptune's three ring systems. So stuff that we just couldn't see from our vantage point here on Earth uh, for the first time unfolded through the lens of Voyager. Yeah. Uh, Voyager 2 launched first. Uh, like we talked about, it, it was designed, uh, its trajectory was designed to fly by f- four planets. Voyager 1 launched uh, after 2, but with a shorter and faster trajectory, it's... Its mission, uh, a big difference here is that Voyager 1 was designed to fly by Saturn's moon Titan, which has a, a dense atmosphere. Uh, it is really a world unto itself. And the idea 
was, hey, get get to Jupiter, get to Saturn, study this moon. But that course change meant that Voyager 1 couldn't see uh, Uranus and Neptune, that it, it's uh, to, to we're going to get to it, basically the turn they had to make to get to Titan, put it out of the ecliptic and and basically ended its planetary science mission. Yeah, the, I, I love the foresight here to call the missions by the number in which the public would receive data. Mm-hmm. Since two launched before one, but one would reach its destination before two. So instead of having everybody be like, why is this Voyager 2 and now Voyager 1 is coming? They're like, no, 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 we're just going to name them the other way. It's very, it's very clever. And I like this idea that, you know, Voyager 2, they, that was the grand tour. They could get that on a grand tour trajectory. But then by having a pair of these probes, they could get the other one there faster. And, you know, today... I mean, I guess getting more data from Titan is the reason. You would think today, would they would they do it like this? Have two identical probes flying nearly identical missions? Um, I don't know. I don't know. But it was... Uh, so Voyager 1, I think about Voyager 1 sometimes, and I think it's kind of too bad because, you know, it got the much um, less glamorous mission, although it did get to go first. Yeah. 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 It, it doesn't have that legacy of... of... Voyager two, uh, right? Well, it doesn't have Uranus, sure. Neptune in the in the mix. It's just right. got the yeah. first shots from from Jupiter and Saturn. Yeah, and uh, Voyager two, they could. So the the plan was uh, skip ahead a little bit. If Voyager one had been unable to complete its Titan mission, that was so important. There was a plan to steer Voyager two that way as well, and and neither would have seen Uranus and Neptune. And to me, that's a decision that that. I mean, they had their reasons right, but in my mind, getting to more plants and is more important than a moon. But right, and and keeping in mind here, the data that we have to go on is Earth-based observations, which are not many, and Pioneer flybys, right? So, so before uh, Voyager, Pioneer ten flew by Jupiter in 1973. Pioneer eleven flew by Jupiter and Saturn. In 1974 and 1979. So that's it. That, that's, those were our views. We had some views. We knew some things. But that was all we had to go on in terms of these systems. And uh, so Voyager, we were counting on the Voyagers to give us way more detail about Jupiter and Saturn. And they did. You know, like they came, they came through and it was not until um, Galileo and Cassini that we really got even more detail. These were the, because those got to live in the systems, but these were, you talk about economical, right? If you can fly by two, three, four planets with one probe, that is, that's pretty awesome, even though you can't hang around very long. So, you know, they were making, based on very limited observations in the flybys of the pioneers to get uh, to Voyager as the next step. So let's let's talk about the spacecraft uh, a little bit. It, as you alluded to, they are identical. So it's not like Voyager one and two have slightly different or overlapping skill sets. They are they are uh, they are twins. They each carried eleven instruments. You had cameras uh, looking at the infrared spectrum, uh, ultraviolet light, tools to observe radio signals, uh, measure energy fluxes, and the ability to study uh, ion and electron um, distributions. So a bunch of stuff on here over time uh, some of these have been turned off which we're going to get to uh, communications are made with a high gain antenna if you see a picture of these things uh, the antenna is is by far the sort of defining visual characteristic right that uh, this big this big dish uh, on the back and you have uh, uh, an antenna coming out, out below it as well yeah 
basically these things are flying radios with some cameras attached to the other side because uh, you've got to get that data back across the deep space network uh, back to us or uh, or if it matters, right? Exactly. If, uh, if a camera takes a picture in space and no one can see it, did it really happen? Hmm. Yeah. Good question. You want to talk? You want to teach us about plutonium? It's always fun. Oh, plutonium. Don't. It's dangerous. Don't handle it. But you need a oh, power source. Good. Right? You need a power source. And so... The, they have a uh, plutonium generation. We've talked about using radioactive materials to generate power. Like in, in deep space, when you don't have the ability to collect with solar panels, this is what you have to do. So they have both of them, plutonium-238 power cells, has a half-life of about 87 and three quarters years. So half of that plutonium is gone in 87 years. But of course, basically the heat... Uh, the moment, as as we talked about a few uh, weeks ago, the moment that you put that, refine that material, right? It's like it starts to radiate and that means it is decreasing. So they launched with 470 watts of power, but um, by the time, like by 2011, they that that pile was generating about, you know, a little less than 270 watts, right? So um, over the years the uh the the power output has dropped and it will continue to drop so they're still powered right i mean they can still do some stuff but they have way less power than they did when they were launched and when they flew past their objectives and now it's just that's how the radioactive power system works so they will continue to have a less and less power uh to operate systems on those craft as they go further and further away and of course the further they go they also have to transmit further back to us which is a challenge too each craft carries a copy of the Voyager Golden Record. Uh, this is, uh, I think, as far as like uh, you know, spacecraft from the the sixties, seventies, and eighties. Uh, some of them blend together, but the Golden Records really help Voyager again build that legacy. They're gold-plated copper record. It's about twelve inches in diameter, and they contain sounds and images uh, selected to portray the diversity of life and culture. On Earth, and the idea is that if these things are ever scooped up at some point in the future by intelligent, you know, uh, ex- extraterrestrial life, or even for future humans who may find them, uh, I guess the contents um, can be played back and 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 tell a story about what Earth uh, was like at the right. time of launch. And among the, uh, it's funny because uh, Chuck Berry just died a few weeks ago, and yeah. Um, I saw several people who I follow who are scientists point out that Johnny B. Good is on the golden record. And so Chuck Berry's cool. music will be, you know, it's far out in space and will be traveling far, you know, far into space for a long time to come. The the contents uh, were selected by NASA, headed by a committee chaired by Carl Sagan. So he, he noted that, um, that it was basically like launching uh, a bottle into the cosmic ocean. Uh, and he thought that the content selected was hopeful about life on this planet, and he viewed it as a time capsule, right? That that no matter what happens on Earth, these these gold records will be hurtling their way through space. If they were ever to be uh, picked up, uh, there are instructions on how to how to play back the record, including speed, including ways they can read the data. Um, I believe there's an arm uh, aboard as well that that could actually play the record, and. You know, you have this music, you have this imagery. NASA has a, a website up; you can actually see just about everything on it. And maybe it's maybe it's just me. I'm curious how you feel about this. Uh, the Golden Records kind of freak me out a little bit. Like this idea that 
that some people, you know, basically put these images and stuff on it and they're so far away from earth and they may never be found. I mean, ever in all eternity, uh, or they may be found at some point and, and that's maybe even freakier to think about, but it's, it makes me feel really small. Like it, it, it's kind of an incredible thing. It's, um, I don't know if it freaks me out. I, I love, what I love about it is this is a whole project that is devoted to this, like Carl Sagan said, putting a message in the bottle. And you think about the immensity of the ocean. And in this case, it is the most immense ocean you could possibly imagine. It is all of space. And the 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 chances that anyone will find these probes and the chances that uh, that anybody's out there and that they're spacefaring and that they can find this little tiny thing that's just hanging around in interstellar space at this point. Um, it, it, it's, it's almost non-existent that, that anybody will ever find these things. And yet somebody, a group of somebody's funded and had a committee and built these things and designed them and put them on these spacecraft anyway. Like, I love the optimism of it that as well as the the recognition that it's entirely possible that in um, that in a few billion years, they will be the only existing um, proof of our existence as a species. OK, yep. it's a little creepy. It's, right. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, even if we don't, you know, put ourselves out of our own misery and our star just grows and, and heats and swallows up and bakes us. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Then, then we'll be gone if we're not a space faring interstellar race by then. But this thing will be out there and it's a record with Chuck Berry on it. You know, I'm fine being uh, portrayed to the universe via Chuck Berry song. I'm totally okay with that. Like, I like good choice. They, they also have the, I mean, we could do a whole episode about the Voyager Golden Record because there's so much in it. They, they tried to figure out how do you explain to people who are like aliens how a record works and, and they try to do like, where are we? And and so they've got like distance of the sun from various like pulsars and things like they're trying to give some idea of like where did this come from and how do you play it and it's uh, all just simple sim symbolically just inscribed on the cover it's fascinating like what an exercise that they had to go through to do this and it's it's really like you know short of having a first contact situation this is the kind of thing it's like this is trying to imagine a first contact situation where this record is the artifact found by somebody. And how would you explain what you're trying to get across? It's just, it's fascinating and optimistic in a, in a great way. Yeah, I think so. So let's talk about the planetary mission a little bit. Uh, Voyager one uh, began photographing Jupiter in January of 1979. Uh, it passed uh, closest by Jupiter's cloud tops on March 5th of that year, uh, about 349,000 kilometers uh, from the planet's center. It, Like we said, it's maybe looking back, the, the biggest discovery, maybe the most surprising, was the volcanic activity uh, on Io. It was the first time the active volcanoes have been seen on any other body in the solar system. So we, we've known that, that Venus and Mars uh, at some point had volcanic activity in the past, but there's never been evidence of any active uh, volcanic activity, but Io is just spewing stuff off all the time. Yeah, it's just and a big like volcanic blob. It's it's like yeah, and the, it's, a, it's a hot mess of, of a moon. I, I remember those pictures. I'll tell you. You talk about um, what I remember. I remember the pictures of Io and how everybody was startled by them and how just how spectacular they are because you expect you know space pictures are all monochrome largely, right? There, there. It's like the moon. It's gray, 
And, you know, Jupiter's colorful, but, you know, you, you don't expect, and Saturn's got, but so many things are just like, they're, they're, they're pastel or they're gray. And then there's Io, and it's this angry red ball, like, or orange ball. And it is, unla- and it doesn't have craters so much as it's just got, like, pimples. Like, it's just it's just an unpleasant, weird thing. And I remember as a kid being like, whoa, like, what is that? Is that real? That's not a science fictional thing. Um, but that's that's Io. And we all know now it's like, yeah, it gets so squashed by the tidal forces of Jupiter's gravity that it, it is, you know, constantly um, getting squished and stretched. And, and the result is it's incredibly volcanically active. But that was a that was a big moment. When uh, people saw that. And then, of course, Europa, which we uh, just t- talked about in our previous episode about the idea of uh, Europa. Um, and, you know, before there was Enceladus, there was Europa. This was the discovery that there it, it's an ice ball with cracks um, and and the potential for oceans underneath and the dramatic difference between Io and Europa and then like Ganymede, which looks very much like the moon, where it's ju- it is the, that gray cratered ball um but io and europa so different than than they are voyager one uh went on to pass saturn in november of 1980 and voyager passed uh about a year later in august 1981 this is where we talk about about titan Uh, its route was designed for an optimal look at the large moon Uh, basically it came uh, around Saturn and then slingshot around to get down to Titan. And like like we said earlier, Voyager 2's trajectory would have been altered to incorporate this flyby if something had happened to Voyager 1. And so this was uh, this was a huge goal of the team. And and like we said, it's, it's the end of uh, Voyager 1's planetary mission. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the shame of it, I, they, they measured all sorts of things about Titan, but photographically, the shame of it is that Titan doesn't look that interesting photographically. It is a blank ball because of the atmosphere. So we didn't get a lot of great visuals from Titan from Voyager, but still, it's an interesting uh, moon that has become more and more interesting as we've uh, as we've explored it further. And now we have a much better, you know, a much better view of it. Mm hmm. Yeah, there is uh, some picture back from Voyager 1, basically hazy looking, you know, being able to see the atmosphere, um, you know, filtering light through it. Uh, it Determine things like the density and composition of the atmosphere, uh, measured the, the moon's mass. But, um, but yeah, so, so that's, that's sort of the end, uh, the end of the road for Voyager 1. Uh, but 2, of course, goes on. Um, we talked about the magnetic field a uranus uh, that it discovered uh i it... mean listen to our ice giants episode so much of what we know about both of uranus and neptune are because of voyager 2 like that was yeah. it that is <laughs> the, it. the uh that's what we've had a close-up of those two planets is this one mission with uh, neptune uh nasa passed within three thousand miles of the ice giants so came in uh came in close uh and then looped between it and the moon uh Triton to to adjust its trajectory, and we spoke about it on that on that episode. But Neptune had uh, the Great Dark Spot, which, according to the Hubble Space Telescope, has since uh, disappeared. Yes. So there's lots of questions about about what happened there. If it's a uh, if it is a, uh, a storm system that that comes and goes, or was a one time thing, we just don't know. We haven't observed it long enough to understand if there's a cycle there or not. But uh, by the end of 1989. You know, uh, you know, ten years since Jupiter, the first Jupiter images returned from Voyager One, 
Voyager 2 has completed the planetary grand tour. So a decade of science um, across four, four planets and several moons. Yeah. Yay. So that's the end of the story, right, Stephen? That's no, it. That's there's all. another chapter. Hmm. There's another chapter. Uh, so after the planetary grand tour, uh, Voyager's mission was extended. And, and f- from my reading, just like New Horizons, this is always planned, right? But you have to kind of get the official blessing. But Voyager 1 and 2 are now charged with uh, helping us understand the very edges of our solar system. And so basically at the end of our sun's influence, and the way this is defined, uh, this is like super complicated, but my understanding of it is that this is defined by the solar wind. So there is a point in space away from the sun where the solar wind, the stream of particles streaming away from our star, uh, is unable to push back against sort of the rest of space, which is called the interstellar medium, which is like hydrogen and helium gas clouds that are basically everywhere in the Milky Way galaxy. So the solar wind carves us out a big bubble that we live within, if that makes sense, uh, called the heliosphere. And this, again, this is formed by these particles streaming out against the interstellar medium. And at some point you reach that threshold, right, where the wind is no longer strong enough to push back and you sort of cross over that boundary. Uh, That is called termination shock, where basically the solar wind stops, where it it has slowed down enough, it it becomes subsonic, and it can no longer uh, push back out against the space around us. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's the it's the you know it's the end of the sun's um, influence in terms of the solar wind, right? There's still gravitational influence, but that's the you know that when you cross termination shock, you and and you're out of the heliosphere. You've got to sort of say that's it, right? This is the sort of the end of the solar system, more or less, which is. You know, it's not entirely true because of the gravity. There's stuff out there that's very, very far away, and yet it's kind of gravitationally attached. But it's it's uh, these are far away objects now. They they keep going and going, and we keep hearing back from them, which is I think the most delightful thing about it is that there's still science to be done. We've got this set of instruments and on this thing going in this direction. What can we learn out there? And so it is things like what's the influence of the sun, um, and and that's uh, pretty. That's pretty amazing. So Voyager One is already out there. Like as of as of 2012, it is it is out of the heliosphere. And Voyager Two still has another couple of years before it'll get there. Which also should give you some idea of the size of the influence of the sun. Right, that the space probe that we shot at at Jupiter and Saturn is only now leaving interstellar space um, 40 years later. In 2013, Voyager One was traveling 17 kilometers a second. I mean. <laughs> They're not pokey. These things are moving. Yeah. And it, it's such a huge distance. Um, like you said, Voyager 2 should follow. Um, so that that edge is not even an abrupt edge. It, scientists think that it may be more of a gradual transition. In 2004, Voyager 1 crossed termination shock, but then it's taken until 2012 to indicate that it's the first human-made object to enter interstellar space. So cl- outside of that boundary, yeah. uh, and there, out, and there's lots outside of, of the sun's influence. Lots of discussion of like what it means. And it's a little bit like asking what a planet is. It's like, because there are so many different ways of like, is it, are, are they, have they left the solar system yet or not? And, and there's debates and, and, you know, but there's a lot of, regardless of the names we put on these things, this, this is giving us uh, data points that were impossible before because we had never sent something out there to do the measurements. And these, 
these instruments are doing these measurements in different directions. And, uh, you know, but they're, they're telling us. And so we get two data points for everything, which is pretty great. So how long does this go on? Are we going to be getting, are our grandchildren going to be, be getting uh, messages radioed back from Voyager 2? Unless there was to become a grandparents in the next three years, uh, then then no. So the scientific instruments are thought, and these are estimates, right? Uh, the, are thought they could they could continue to work until twenty twenty or so, and then the re, and we're already working on a on a subset of what was originally there. We're gonna talk about the cameras in a minute. The cameras have been off for a long time. We're really looking at at measuring ions as they stream by, measuring radio waves, you know, things like that. Uh, but starting in 2020, they will basically uh, enter a prolonged period of shutting things down one by one. Both spacecraft are thought to have adequate electrical power and attitude control uh, to continue operating until 2025. At that point, you know, if they run out of a propellant to control their attitude, they they may not be in control, but you still have power to, to beam stuff back. But maybe they're not supporting any science instruments anymore. But roughly around 2025, uh, science data return will stop. And the spacecraft, even though they're still rocketing through space, uh, no more operations, no more data will be coming back. They'll, they'll go quiet. Alas. But it, that happens. It happens. They've had a good run, right? They've had a good run. They really did. And they'll still be able to, like, do stuff, but they won't be able to tell us about it because we won't have enough power. Oh, well. And they'll still yep. have the records, right? And, and they'll have those, you know, as long as they exist. Um, I didn't really go into it in the notes, but neither Voyager are going to come particularly close to a star yeah. in any sort of time frame. Uh, they're not, like, they're not, you know, bound. You know, they're not heading someplace, right? They're not uh, streaming to another star or another, another solar system. Uh, they're basically kind of going to be in between stars, yeah. practically forever. No, it will. It will take a an incredible coincidence, or well, like I, I think Voyager 2's Voyager two will come close to Sirius. If by close you mean four point three light years, which is like how Alpha Centauri is close. Um, so yeah, it it, it will take. Uh, this is why I say it's optimistic, right? It'll, somebody will have to be looking in interstellar space for stuff and find it or an incredible astronomical, literally, coincidence for anybody to ever see these things. They are they have been sent into the void, essentially. Good luck, little buddy. I think any conversation about Voyager would be incomplete if the pale blue dot uh, was not spoken about. Of course, a very famous photograph of the solar system from Voyager 1 uh, it's about 6 billion kilometers away from Earth, and NASA basically turned the probe to look back into the solar system uh, one last time. Uh, this was in uh, on Valentine's Day in 1990. In the photograph, Earth's apparent size is like the size of a pixel. like It's very small, a tiny blue dot in the vastness of space. Uh, there are bands of light across this photo that, that it looks like if, if you don't know what you're looking at, you think, am I looking through like Saturn's rings or something? You know, they're sort of translucent. It's, it's just light being split across the camera's optics. And this is the last thing the Voyager one cameras ever recorded. It was thought that this would damage them, uh, but they were already done using them, right? They'd already done their planetary grand tour. So they turned the probe around and, and took this picture and it is perhaps one of the the most iconic photos generated out of the space program. It's it's a photo that has 
definitely made the rounds. There'll be a link to see it in the show notes. You've probably seen it. Uh, it's definitely something that gets circulated a lot. And it has led, I mean, it is in there along with like the Earthrise picture from Apollo. It, you know, it, yeah. has, it has led um, other space probe operators to consider doing similar things. So I, I think I've seen a Cassini shot where there's, um, it's the back of Saturn and the and the rings and and Earth is right next to the rings. Um, we've seen shots from Mars. There's a shot of the Earth as seen from the surface of Mars from one of the Mars rovers. So this has become like it, it's also very influential. The idea of showing the smallness and fragility of our planet by viewing it from far away in these alien contexts. And so, I, you know, pale blue dot is not. It, it is a. It is a great idea. It is not a great photograph. It is just kind of noisy garbage. You have to know what you're looking at. It's not breathtaking like the Earthrise picture is, right? But. It has also inspired generations of scientists to do things like that that Saturn picture, which is much more, I think, beautiful and inspiring, and the picture from the surface of Mars, which is kind of amazing. And you see that with there there are some space probes doing flybys where you you get these shots from far away of like the Earth and the Moon, you know, from as they're as they're flying past on their way to somewhere else. And uh, and so it's been influential in that way where now everybody tries to if they if they get the opportunity with their with their device that's out there to provide a little perspective on Earth. Yeah, I, th- I think that's why it's so powerful, uh, because it does provide that. Um, and like we said, the, the cameras were turned off. The software to control them was actually removed from the probe's memory. Uh, and the Earthside computing to gather those images has been removed from service. So those cameras are not coming back on, um, but it's a heck of a way to say goodbye. Yeah, absolutely. And then I would be uh, a uh, I would fail in my in my nerd credibility if I did not point out that uh, spoiler alert for a movie released in the seventies, but. Um, the big reveal of the villain at uh, the in the uh, original Star Trek the motion picture is a Voyager probe. It's not Voyager 2 or anything like that. It's like Voyager 6. Is that it? Yeah, Voyager 6, which of course never existed. But uh, when they go to the center of V'ger, the villain-ish cloud thing in Star Trek the motion picture, at the center is a Voyager probe with the big uh, radio antenna and all of that. And the idea is that it was it was eventually picked up you know, the time scales are all weird too. So it was like it was only only a few hundred years later it was picked up somewhere. I guess I guess the the story is that it it fell through like a wormhole and was on the other side of the galaxy and machine creatures repaired it and and equipped it to send it back to its creator and that's what that's uh, the shaggy shaggy dog story that that uh, runs the plot of Star Trek the Motion Picture. But there it is, Voyager and pop culture. I had to say it. I'm glad you got that covered for us. Yeah, I'm on the I'm on the Star Trek the Motion Picture beat for liftoff. I got it covered. <laughs> well, the one time it's come up, you've done a good job. If you want to learn more about Voyager, we have a bunch of links in our show notes this week. They are at relay.fm slash liftoff slash forty four. From that page you can get in touch with with us, you can send us an email. You can find us on Twitter. The show is at Liftoff Podcast. Jason is Jay Snell, and you can find me there as ISMH. And until our next interplanetary mission, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios. Adios.